Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. It is good to see you all here. You have braved the snow and the cold and the wet and everything else that's come. So good to see you. Glad you could make it. Glad that you got here safely. Hopefully you all did. Um, But it's good to be here and actually get to worship together and to hear from the Word of God. Well, I I don't know about you. But I have definitely been guilty of this many times throughout my life. I I have started a project, gotten about halfway through it, and then just kind of given up on it, right? I don't know if you've ever done this kind of thing before. I I have a number of them, even at my house right now. I I know I have a baseboard, and there are still holes in it from all the nails that put in that just need to be filled, and it is just still sitting there. I got, you know, 90% of it all done, and there's just that one that I forgot, and I just haven't gotten back to it, right? I I think we kind of do this with all kinds of things. We take on some new project, some, some DIY, and, oh, this would be a great thing to do and I'll make this myself and we get, you know, partway through and after a little bit we're just like, ah, I don't really care anymore. <laughs> right, I, I'm kind of done. It just kind of fizzles out or, you know, maybe, maybe you started reading a book, right? That's your New Year's resolution. I want to read more and you get halfway through the book and then you're like, well, I mean, that's enough for today. And then you put it down and you're like, well, I read a bunch yesterday and then, oh, yeah, I still did it but I'll get to it, I'll get to it and then it goes, you know, months by and you never actually finish. Right? It's really easy to do that, to, to start off with something, because it's always exciting when you begin. Right? The beginning's always, it's new, it's exciting, it's, it's fun, and so you're looking at it, you're like, all right, this is going to be great. And then after a while, the excitement kind of fizzles away, and you kind of let things slide back. Right? I, I, I don't know if you've ever done this, but even though started watching a movie and just partway through, you've just decided, you know what, I'm done. Right? It'll, it'll just sit on Netflix queue forever and never actually finish it. And for the most part, you know what, these aren't big things, right? If you don't finish a movie, you don't finish a book, you know, your life isn't going to end, right? If the DIY sits in your garage for months on end, that's fine. Like, it's not going to kill you. But the truth is, this can start happening in bigger areas in our lives, right? We, we can start doing this stuff with things like school, right? And you start you know, school starts and you begin, you're like, all right, I'm going to be doing my homework every day, right away as I get home. And and then it just kind of starts fizzling and fading and you're like, ah, right, ah, there's the weekend. Well, there's always next weekend. We start putting things off and off and and the consequences for those things become bigger and bigger, right? We, We can do this with relationships even. Right? It's always fun when, when it starts off and it's new and it's exciting and it's, and it's all, you know, everything's new and it's great. And then a couple of years down the line and you're like, oh, it's not new anymore. It's not quite as exciting. And, and the challenge is, what are you going to do then? What do you do then when, when all that newness and all that fun kind of starts wearing off and real life becomes a bit more apparent? Right? Many couples have gotten into trouble not because they got into one fight, it's because years ago things stopped working and they stopped trying. Right? The, the consequences get bigger and, and truly the same thing happens in our spiritual lives as well. Right? We first meet Jesus and it's amazing and it's new and it's exciting and there's all these things and we're super joyful, ready to go share Jesus with everyone we meet and then the years start to go by and, and that excitement starts to wear down a little bit. The, the passion that you had when you first started, first got into it, to reading your Bible starts to, to, to wane away a little bit and things just seem a little bit different after a while. The newness starts to wear off and it can feel more like a burden after some time. 
And the question is, well, what do we do then? What do we do then when it seems as though things have faded just a little bit? Well, this morning, really, that is what we're going to be looking at. And so if you have a Bible with you, let me invite you to open to the book of Revelation. We're starting off a new series here, and we are going to be looking at Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And so we're going to be starting at the beginning of chapter 2. Revelation is the very last book in our Bibles, so you can find your way there. So would you follow along with me? Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 1. These are the words of Jesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you, uh, you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Well, let's bow our heads and pray this morning. Father, we thank you. Lord, thank you even just for the reminder this morning that you are the one in control. Even when the weather seems out of control, Lord, it is still part of your plan. And so, Father, I pray now as we dive into your word, as we hear this reminder for our own souls, Lord, I pray, would you be speaking to us? Lord, give us ears to hear what you have for us. Lord, I pray, would we not be those who abandon our first love, but would we patiently endure, pursue after you, and be those who conquer in your name? We ask these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning we are beginning this new series, walking through uh, seven letters to seven churches uh, in the book of Revelation. And so we, we kind of got ourselves introduced to the book of Revelation last week. We looked at uh, part of chapter one, and so we kind of got introduced to this, this whole new idea that Revelation is really a book that is looking forward into the future as to when Jesus is coming back. However... The problem is, when we read through it, it's not just about the future. In fact, it has a lot to say to the churches that received this originally, and in fact, a lot to us. In fact, these letters, these seven letters that we're going to be walking through are a great example of exactly that, of actually Jesus speaking to the church now, at the time when this was written, and to us as well. And so there are seven letters that are written. John, uh, the apostle, is writing from his uh, island of Patmos. He had been sent into exile, and now he's writing back to the churches that he would have known in what was called Asia Minor, right? Today we call it Turkey, right? It's modern-day Turkey. And so he's writing to these seven different churches. And you might ask, okay, like, why seven churches, right? Certainly there were more churches in that entire area than seven, and in fact, of course there were, right? We even know of one very explicitly in our Bible that is 
Colossians, right? The book of Colossians was written to the church in Colossae. That was in Asia, and they don't get a mention here. So why does he choose seven churches? Well, if you've ever gone through the book of Revelation, you, know, you might know that there are a lot of numbers in Revelation. They're all over the place. You're going to find threes and sevens and tens and twelves, and you're going to wonder, okay, what is all going on with these numbers? Well, certainly, probably the most common one you're going to come across is seven, right? We saw that last week with the seven spirits. We're going to see it now with these seven stars and seven lampstands and seven churches and all of these things. They're all seven, so what's going on? Well, if you want to think about it, seven is really just a number of completion. It's a number that, that indicates a round, whole, full, complete unit, right? You kind of think of our number 100, right? If you are giving 100, you are giving everything. You're giving full effort, 100%. That is a number that is round, complete, and whole. Well, it's very much the same thing here. And so it's not just that these seven churches are the special ones or anything particular like that. It's seven churches to indicate here is a picture for all of the church, right? For all churches of all time, we can actually learn something from these letters. And so we actually need to be paying attention to what is going on. Yeah, it's specific to the church of Ephesus, but it has a lot to say to us as well. We need to pay attention to what they are commended for and actually pay attention to what they are also being rebuked for. We need to hear that encouragement and heed the warning that is there. So the church in Ephesus, they are commended for, for guarding their doctrine, but they're warned to continue in love and are told, return and conquer. And so this morning, that's, that's exactly what I want us to hear. I want us to hear what Jesus has to say to this church and what he has to say to us as well. So look back with me at verse 1. Verse 1 says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now right away, we're faced with a whole bunch of questions. And first of all, just what is going on, Right? There's a whole bunch of different symbols that are all brought up, and so what exactly is he talking about? You're probably guessing, like, I'm pretty sure Jesus is in there somewhere because it's church and Jesus is probably the answer, and, and actually you're right, okay? He is the one who is holding these seven stars, but, but what is the rest of it actually talking about? Well, okay, if it, you just look back, if you have your Bible open, back to chapter 1, verse 20. It says this. It says, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, Jesus is speaking, and the seven golden lampstands, they are seven star, or the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. You go, great, clear as mud, right? Stars are the angels, lampstands are the churches. Well, I think it's easy enough to say, okay, a lampstand is the church, right? It's this symbol, lampstand held up light so that everyone can see it, and that's very much what the church is meant to do. But what about these angels? What are these angels, these stars that are written? And, and honestly, there, there's a lot of sort of discussion even as people try and understand it. See, most obviously you'd say, well, it's an angel, right? So each church gets its own angel, sort of guardian angel that gets to, to watch over each of these churches. And, and honestly, that, that could be what it's saying. But the problem is, all of these letters are written to the angel, right? These are letters written to the angel of the church in Ephesus. 
And so you, you kind of look at that and you think, why would God tell John to write, an, or to write a letter to an angel that's really for the church? It seems awfully convoluted. And so a lot of people have said, well, maybe then the angel, right, because angel can be also just um, translated as messenger, right? It's a messenger. So maybe that's actually talking about the pastor, right? The pastor is the one who delivers the words of God. Maybe that's who John is talking about, because that would make sense, right, to the pastor. Here's what I'm going to say about your church. Problem is, nowhere in the New Testament are pastors ever referred to as angels. In fact, you might look at me and go, yeah, that's probably right. I don't think that's it, <laughs> right? That's not. But, but then exactly what is it? And people have suggested maybe it's the guy who is carrying the letter. You're like, well, I don't think it's written to the postman, right? That doesn't seem to work either. So here's what I think it is. I think when it's talking about this angel, I think what it's talking about is the spiritual character of the church before God. A church is more than just a gathering of people. Actually, there is a spiritual reality to the church that exists before and in the presence of God. And so I think that's the best explanation of how we are to understand it. But regardless of that, actually the point there is still clear. Jesus is the one who holds the churches in his right hand. He is the one who by his power is going to uphold them and he walks amongst them as well. This is not a letter that Jesus is writing from some distance, from some far place and says, well, I've heard something. No, this is Jesus who is, and, uh, who is amongst his people. He is with these churches, he is upholding them, and he is going to write a letter to them. And so the question is then, what is Jesus going to say to the church? Look at verse two. It says, I know your works and your toil and your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and, uh, called themselves apostles and found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Right, the letter to the church in Ephesus begins with this commendation for them. Here is what you are doing well. In fact, as we go through this series, you're going to see, actually, this is the pattern for most of the letters. It contains a commendation, something the church is doing well, something the church needs to be rebuked, they need to correct, and, and oftentimes actually has one or, well, sorry, it often has both of them, but sometimes there are two churches that have nothing that they need to be corrected on, and there's one church that has nothing that Jesus commends them for. But the Ephesians are commended for patiently enduring and testing their teachers. They have guarded their doctrine, right? If you remember anything about the, the city in Ephesus, it was this big port town. It was a trade route going through it. In fact, there was lots of hustle and bustle. There was people going through. There was a plurality of all kinds of things going on, right? People who had different religious views and outlooks on life. In fact, the city was known. It had this giant temple to Artemis, right? If you remember from the book of Acts, actually, Paul gets into a lot of trouble with this city because there was a whole bunch of people who made idols, and they made their living by selling these idols, and the church came in and said, these idols are nothing, and they got furious all up in arms and attacked them and started this giant riot going on. 
And so right from the beginning, this church in Ephesus has faced this persecution, has faced this attack on them for what they believed. And so Jesus now writes to them and says, I know your works. I know you have been enduring patiently and you have held on to your doctrine in all of this. You have not uh, capitulated. You have not, you know, uh, where is it? Sorry. Made compromise for what you believe. Right? In a city known for all manner of plurality, they held to the truth without waver. And whenever a new teacher would come into town, maybe on a circuit or whatever, and said, I'm, apostle, I'm an apostle, and here's the word that God has for you, what they would do is, okay, prove it. Actually, they would have a Bible open and say, well, I'm going to make sure that ex- what you are saying is true. I'm not just going to take your word for it. This is my authority. In fact, that's exactly what they did, and Jesus commends them for it. This was a city where Timothy, if you remember Paul's protege, actually spent some time working as a pastor, and when Paul sent Timothy to the church, this is what he wrote to him. He said, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. When Paul sends Timothy there, he says, I want you to pay close attention to your doctrine. Why? Because it actually matters. It actually makes a big difference. In fact, salvation is on the line as you teach these people. Be careful about what you say. I know every once in a while we hear people say, look, oh, guys, just, just, just chill out. Right? It doesn't really matter. It's not that important, right? You get all bent out of shape over all these theological ideas, and the church just has all these problems because of it. Really, all you need to do is love Jesus, and that'll be the end. Now, we're going to come to the issue of love in just a minute because it's in this chapter, but, but let's just start with the first part. Because here's the truth, as soon as you say, well, all you need to do is love Jesus, you have to ask the question, well, who is Jesus? In fact, at that moment, you're already a theologian, whether you like it or not. As soon as you're talking about Jesus, you have to say something about who he is. And the only question then is whether you're accurate or not, whether you're actually faithful to what God tells us or whether we're wandering away. In fact, Jesus cares about the doctrine. He commends them for holding it. It's why God gave the church elders, in fact. Titus chapter 1, Paul talks about the role of elders. He says, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. The role of an elder is teacher and corrector. See, Jesus actually cares about what we believe. In fact, if you want to jump down all the way to verse 6, he says, yet this you have, you hate the, work, the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. That's a strong statement, isn't it? To hear Jesus say, there are some things I hate, and I'm glad you hate them as well. That is a strong, strong statement. Jesus commends them for not bearing with those who are evil. Now, if you're curious who are the Nicolaitans, the answer is, I don't know. (laughs) We don't actually know very much about them. They show up really just here in the book of Revelation, other than the fact that they were clearly false teachers. And so Jesus commends them not only for holding to the truth, but for holding to it 
uh, through persecution, through the pressure to, um, to change what they believe. When Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, this is what he says. He says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand on the evil day and having done all to stand firm. See, the church in Ephesus was charged by Paul, I want you to take up all of the spiritual armor so that you may be able to stand firm in your faith and not back down even when things are difficult. And so if we can learn something from the church in Ephesus, it's this, guard your doctrine. Actually care about what the word of God says. Do not become complacent or compromise. If you hear me teach something, you can challenge me. Anyone who comes and says, this is what the word of God says, you ought to be looking and saying, is that true? Let us actually test those who teach. Right? Our dedication is never to a pastor or a preacher. It is to the word of God. This is our authority. And so hear me, just as the Ephesians were pressed in a very pluralistic culture to change what they believe, we are as well. Sometimes in very explicit ways, right? You, you can turn on the TV, go onto the internet, and you're going to find all manner of teachers who are going to tell you that what the Bible has to say is completely false and you shouldn't believe it. In fact, you'd be a fool if you did. There are all kinds of people who are explicitly going to just attack you, but I'm going to say there's far more that are going to do it implicitly. It's the sly look from coworkers, the little chuckle under the breath, the kind of mocking look and disapproving actions as you speak what you actually believe. Guard yourself against this by knowing the word of God well and take courage in it. It often can be very subtle and we can make and want to make excuses to try and shift around what we believe and say, well, I mean, it's not really like that. It, it, it's kind of more like this and we want to try and change it to make it sound nicer to other people's ears. Brothers and sisters, would we remain faithful to the word of God? Jesus commends those who guard their doctrine. Let us be that kind of church. But of course, that isn't all Jesus has to say, is it? No, in fact, they have a problem, too. They have a shortcoming that Jesus is also going to address. While they have firmly stood on their doctrine, they have been lacking, they needed to continue in love. Look at verse 4. It says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. See, I don't know what it would have been like to be there in the room when this first got read. Right? Imagine it, if, if you can, just put yourself into this little room and, and, and someone has now brought forward and says, John wrote a letter that Jesus actually came and he said something about us and they get down to this part and they're hearing Jesus commend them and say, I have seen your, your endurance, your patience, I have seen you hold fast to the word of God, keep going. And then verse four, but this I have against you and the room would have gone silent. You have forgotten the love you had at first, and here's the thing, I would bet, I would bet every person in the room knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. I bet everyone knew exactly what it was. 
that they had at one point been a loving community and expressed their love for God and for one another, but after years of of being hardened by battle and sort of developing a thick skin, they just didn't have time for that kind of thing anymore, And, and they were far more concerned about simply weathering the storm and making it through the battle and stopped caring about that love. The spark that used to be there had gone. They had abandoned that genuine relationship with God. And Jesus says, I've noticed this happening. I've noticed that you have wandered away. At one point, you were joyfully serving, consumed with a passion for Jesus. Now the fire has grown so dim. You might say, yeah, but, but they were fighting for this doctrine. They were holy. Certainly, that's enough, isn't it? Certainly it's enough to just believe the right things, and, and that's what matters. What, come on. Does it really matter if all this other stuff is there? James writes this. He says, you believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. See, the truth is, demons have great theology, <laughs> They don't have a love for God. It's not that this pure sort of intellectual understanding is sufficient for the Christian life. Actually, it is needing to be coupled with this love, and this is what the church had been losing. This was hardly a minor point for Jesus. In fact, even when he was on earth, he told his disciples, John chapter 13, by this All people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love was to be the defining feature of the church and by which everyone would know that they follow Jesus. This defines a church, a love for God and a love for one another. And the church that is lacking love is in danger. In fact, Jesus says to them, second half of verse 5, He says, if not, if you continue like this, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Jesus saying, I am going to come and I will remove you as a church. I will take you away. I will no longer allow you to be a church. See, we hear of churches closing all the time. And you have to at least wonder whether or not that is God's sovereign work of actually saying, I'm removing you. You have fallen away. So the issue of a loveless church is not a trifling matter. It is a matter of whether or not Jesus will allow them to continue as a church. See, when Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, this is actually what he is praying for. Ephesians chapter 3 Paul prays, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God." Paul's prayer is that they might be rooted and grounded in this love so that they would see all the fullness of who God is. Paul is praying for them for that very reason because if they lose that, Jesus is watching. 
See, I think if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you know exactly what this is talking about. Right? You don't even need to go through the Bible. You know exactly what it is in your own life. To feel at one point that, that you were passionate about Jesus, that you were following after him, that you were on fire, that you were just excited and joyful and filled and ready to serve with everything you have, and you have felt at times that passion wane down low. And you felt exactly this, that the love that you once had has faded so much. You used to love Jesus, now you kind of just live with him. The warning of the Ephesian church is exactly this. Continue in love. Do not let that grow cold. But you might say, well, hold on for a minute. I mean, doesn't that just kind of invalidate everything you just said at the beginning? Doesn't that just go back on everything you talked about? If they had pursued their doctrine and that led them to this loveless state, surely we shouldn't pursue that. Surely that's the problem, that people go too far into their theology and they lose their love. That's a problem. But I think really that that's just an example of how we tend to think of things as opposites. Right? We tend to think of it as an opposite. You can either be theologically minded or you can be love-minded. And that's not the case. Actually, that's not the intention ever. Actually, I think what we're meant to see is that if we pursue love outside of a knowledge of God, we are not pursuing genuine love. And if we are pursuing a knowledge of God without love, we will never understand the God of love. Both of them are intertwined together. They are not meant to be separated. In fact, what Jesus is saying is the problem is you did separate these two. They are meant to be together. One of my favorite memories from, from studying at, at seminary was actually coming out of my systematic theology class. It was a long evening class, it was a three-hour lecture, and at the end, you finished at like nine or 10 at night, and you're tired, but almost every time, as I would walk back to my apartment, I would usually stop at a bench, and I'd have to simply stop and pray and thank God for all of the things that he had done. See, my professor, I, I praise God for him, he understood exactly this. Theology was not some, some cold study of ancient books. It was how we come to know the living God and what he has done for us. I was actually led not to see a textbook or a test or a paper, but to see and behold the beauty and the greatness of God. See, the problem wasn't that they were studying their Bible. It was that they had separated knowing the words from knowing the God of the word. The call is to guard your doctrine as you continue in love. Do not separate the two. But then the question is, okay, but what do we do if we have? What do we do if we find ourselves exactly there, where we, where we have abandoned that love, where we have actually said, I, I've let that fire grow very, very dim? What, what is exactly is the way back? And the beautiful thing is actually Jesus maps that out exactly for us. Look back with me at verse 5. He calls them return and conquer. Verse 5 says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, 
Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. See, the warning Jesus gives is not one without hope. In fact, Jesus gives them a plan. Here is how you can return. First of all, remember. Remember from where you have fallen. Remind yourself what it was like when you first met Jesus. Do you remember that time? Where you first learned about what he had done. Where you first realized that it was for you, that Jesus had died because he actually loved you and you could come to know him. Do you remember the excitement and the joy that was there? Do you remember going and sharing and telling people about what Jesus had done and all of the amazing things that were going on? Maybe you remember a missions trip, this, this time where you were just close with God. Maybe it was summer camp or something like that. Some time where, where you were with Jesus and you were confident in his love and you were just overwhelmed in all that he had done. Do you remember that? I think so often we get sucked into the abyss of the present. We never think back on what Jesus has done. In fact, Jesus builds remembrance into the very fabric of the church. It's why we have communion. That's why we practice it every month, to be a reminder of what Jesus has done for us. Remember what God has done. Secondly, repent. Repent of your sins. See, this falling of, from love is always accompanied, if not driven, by sin. It's sin that causes us to take our eyes off of Jesus, to make all of these compromises in our lives, to, to slowly wander away further and further and to kind of numb that feeling in our hearts, that tug back. And so he says, remember from where you have fallen and then come before Jesus and repent. Turn back to him. Ask for the forgiveness of your sins. Repent of the sinful patterns that have been taking precedent over spending time with him. Confess your sins for he is faithful and just to forgive us. Remember who God is, how he is faithful and merciful. I, I don't know how long you have wandered. But there are times where you think to yourself, I, I've been gone for so long. Like it's been so long since there has been anything happening. I'm not sure I can even go back. Listen to what the prophet Joel says. He says, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. It was the promise for the nation of Israel. It's the promise for the church in Ephesus. It's the promise for us as well. Repent of your sins. Turn back to him, for he is faithful and just to forgive us. Right? Remind yourself of who is saying this. This is the risen Jesus, the one who died and rose again, who died in our place to pay for our sins. He is the one who says, return, come back to me. Remember from where you have fallen, repent of your sins. Finally, verse five says, and do the works you did at first. Remember, repent, if you want another R, redo, <laughs> all right? Remember, repent, redo. 
But you might say, well, hold on a minute, hold on. Because isn't the whole problem that they were doing these things without love? You're telling me that the, the answer is to now start doing these things? Isn't, isn't that what they were getting in trouble for in the first place? How is that the solution? Does it mean we should just be serving God without any affection for him? How is that a solution? But hear what Jesus has to say. See, sometimes I think that we assume that what we need to do is to sit on the couch and wait and say, well, as soon as I feel like serving, I'm going to serve. As soon as God changes my heart, then I will get up and I will start being obedient to what he calls me to do. And see, that's how you never change. That's how nothing ever happens. It, oddly enough, what Jesus is saying is right. See, love is an emotion, but it's not just an emotion. It's not just something we feel detached from all action or choice. No, in fact, love is a choice, a decision of the will that leads to action on behalf of its object. Or if you want to use the 90s theologian's DC talk, love is a verb. <laughs> if you remember that band. <laughs> it's true. All of us know that. We know the difference between someone who says, yeah, I love you, and then they do nothing about it. We eventually come and say, that's not genuine love. That's not true love. If you say it, but it's never accompanied by action, it's nothing. But see, the opposite also is true. Our actions lead us to love. It's a bit, little bit like acquiring a taste for a certain food. How do you acquire a taste for something? Well, what do you do? You taste it. You try a little bit of it, and then you try a little bit more, and then a little bit more, and a little bit more, and eventually you start saying, you know, I, I don't really mind the taste. You know, I actually kind of like the taste. Man, I really like this taste. I want to keep going and get more and more. In fact, that's so much how our heart works as we start exercising, actually doing what love calls us to do. We find it builds in us a genuine love for him, right? Just like starting a hobby. Maybe you started because there was something in your home that you needed to fix, and you had to figure out how to do it, and you found out, you know, that was kind of actually a little bit fun. I, I, was, I was actually interesting. I, I kind of liked it. Maybe I'll try to do this, you know, something else, and it grows, and it grows, and it grows over time. The well, same thing is true of our love. Your actions lead you to love, and then your love leads you to action once again. It's the same thing with our spiritual lives. As we discipline ourselves to read our Bible, spend time in prayer, share the gospel with our neighbors, we find actually we love it more and more. The more we serve in the church, we find that our love for the church and for God grows more and more. See, this is exactly what Jesus is saying. How do you return to that love you had at once? Remember from where you have fallen. Repent of your sins and then redo what you were doing in the first place. Let it grow your love more and more so that you might return to him and conquer. See, the last verse in our passage says... He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. See, this final statement is not just for the church in Ephesus. In fact, it's addressed to all the churches, including us. It is the call to conquer. It's a theme we'll see a number of times throughout the book of Revelation in these seven letters. It's not a call to conquer people 
or conquer politics or some over land or anything like that. It is a call to remain faithful to Jesus no matter what the cost. Revelation chapter 12 says of believers, it says, and they have conquered Satan by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony for they loved not their lives even unto death. The one who conquers is the one who loves Jesus above everything unto the very end. Who loves Jesus more than their lives. Who loves Jesus even more than protecting ourselves, our safety, or anything else that this life has to offer. It's the one who has said, Jesus is my first love. It's the call to the church in Ephesus and it's the call to the church in Promontory as well. Guard your doctrine as you continue in love, so return to him and conquer temptation to love anything else. Because the promise is for those that do that, we will eat at the tree of life in heaven with God. For those that love Jesus above their lives, we are given eternal life with him. So this morning as we close, Let me end with this challenge, to love Jesus above everything. If maybe this is you, that you have been wandering, where it's been feeling cold for a long time, or maybe not even cold, maybe it's just been feeling dead. It's been feeling nothing for so long. Hear the words of Jesus to you. Return. Remember from where you were. Repent of your sins and do the works you did at first. Return to him and be those that conquer and love him unto death. Know Jesus more through his word as we carefully search out what he has told us, not to further a debate, but to further our love for him. See, this is what Jesus would write to the church. This is what Jesus has called our church to as well. So let us heed the warning. Let us hear the encouragement. Return to him, the one who died in our place. Let us be conquerors through him who has loved us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much. Lord, thank you so much that you do not leave us to ourselves, that you don't abandon us. Lord, even when we are wandering far from you, Lord, you come and you seek us out and you bring us back. Lord, I pray, work in our hearts today that we might long for you, that we might love you above everything else. Lord, I pray, work in our lives that we might one day spend eternity in paradise with you. Father, fix our hearts and our minds and our lives on you and on you alone. We ask these things in your name. Amen.